evening. Um, hey, it's good to be here. Uh, we're looking at these topics of gender and sexuality. Um, so thank you for the introduction. In fact, my days in a barrister, my learned master was Stephen Shaw. Uh, so I had to learn under him uh, for my pupilage. And uh, yeah, just a couple of things. Hopefully you got two things on the way in. One was a little booklet just about Evangelical Alliance. We're a membership organization. Love you to consider. If you'd love to support us, be a member. That's how we exist. That does two things for us. One, it does help resource us. But the other is to say when we're speaking, it's not just something I've made up or David or Donna but we're representing our members across Northern Ireland and across the UK with the largest and oldest body representing evangelical Christians. Uh, And one of the things that excites me in that is we get to speak into some of these spaces on some of the more contentious issues. A colleague of mine is coming over tomorrow and we're looking to record uh, some materials around being human. Because it seems to us that the very notion of what it is to be human is kind of the most contested idea in our culture. What is a human being? Um, where's the beginning of life, where's the end of life, what does it mean to be human and to exist in this space? Um, I was on the train a couple of months ago coming down to work and a guy was asking me about my dad at the time and just how he was and then he started sharing some stuff going on in his own life and he just said, just being human just is so hard these days and it just really caught me with that phrase and it kind of feeds into some of what we're looking at tonight uh, around gender and sexuality. So what we're going to do for a few minutes, look at some of the sexuality. I'm not going to do that in detail because look at kind of gender and the transgender just takes a little bit of time uh, and hopefully there'll be a little bit of space for questions. Um, So the next slide, and that's our intro good, is uh, just on this, is two different kind of covers, hopefully coming up next. Excellent. So on the left-hand side is Ryan and Macklemore's hit song, Same Love, which really became the kind of gay anthem in the pro-gay marriage scene in the States. Um, I'm not going to sing it. My brothers are very musical. I am not. I know the limits of my giftings. It's definitely not that. But in the, in the core of it, it's a kind of this tune or this little rhyme, I can't change even if I tried, even if I wanted to, I can't change It's a very catchy kind of storytelling. It talks about a book written a couple of thousand years ago that's telling you how to live your life. It has a fairly good go at the Bible in the process. Um, But it's got this narrative, I can't change even if I wanted to. I wonder, I mean, the question that that gives rise to is, is that true? So when I play that sometimes in youth groups, the song, oh yeah, I know that tune, it's catchy and people get it. And on the right is a book by a guy called Glenn Harrison, um, who's been over in Northern Ireland a few times speaking about this and talking about a better story. The we as Christians need to tell a better story because the world with songs like I Can't Change and Ryan and Macklemore is telling a better story. Glenn points out that the sexual revolution promised more sex and more happiness. Actually, statistically, we're having less sex and we're less happy with the sex that we're having. Okay? But nobody likes to talk about that. So interestingly, the sexual revolution didn't deliver on what it promised, but it kind of won the debate. The facts don't matter. It said this is what it's going to look like. You'll have more sex, you'll be happier. It didn't turn out that way, but it still won the narrative. People think, well, I'm free to do what I like and have sex with who I like. And he talks about we as Christians need to have a better story that catches people's hearts and minds, whereas we tend to get so defensive on the issue. Part of the reason for that, I think, is, is the half story on the next slide that we've sometimes told. Sometimes people say, well, So if Christianity is this great story about relationships, about sexuality, about gender, why why are we struggling so much in our culture? And I think the reason is that we have been sucked into telling a half story. So the church historians tell us, I like to wonder, 
it's much more fun when there's a camera at the back that has to follow you. So it's great. I just, I just do that for badness sometimes. Um, is that, so the, the story was creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If you're to try and summarize the biblical story. And for a long time, we told that story. And then for a variety of reasons, we began to have more like missional events. You had a shorter time to try and tell that story. You didn't have people week after week coming to church. So you, you had a maybe half hour gospel mission. And so getting everything around creation in and getting everything about the restoration, the new heavens and new earth in was tricky. So we shrunk the story down. Um, I pick on thee because now I can't see him. But I need to pick, you know, pick on somebody. I pick on Jeremy. There I can find somebody. I see the person I'm saying. So the story then is you shrink it down. You maybe have heard a gospel presentation a bit like this, um, particularly if you know Jeremy. Jeremy, you're really bad. We all know that to be true. The lawyer in me is happy. I've created a problem because I've got the solution. It's okay. I've got the golden ticket to heaven. Jesus died for you. And if you take this golden ticket, you get to heaven. And it's a kind of shrunken version of the gospel. It's all about the saving of an individual soul. It's very much about going to heaven when you die. The image that came at, those, at that time, 120, 30 years ago, was much more the pictures were about people floating around in clouds in heaven with little wings and playing harps. It's not a lot of that in the Bible. <laughs> um, those bits. So, and it was all about the saving of souls to heaven. And then what we began to do, apparently culturally it's no longer acceptable for me to say to Jeremy, you're really bad. Though I find that easy, but I'm not supposed to say that anymore. So I just say, Jesus, okay, or, Jeremy, it's okay. Jesus loves you. So we shrink it even further. And the kind of gospel you hear from people is just like, Jesus love. Jesus loves you. It's all good. And maybe for a day or two, a week or two, that's okay for people. But there's no depth and richness to that story. And so it doesn't work in our culture. So the historians would say about 100 plus years ago, that's when we shrunk to that fall redemption, that half story that's very individualistic and saving of souls and doesn't really work. And then we shrunk it even further when we had the choice either to re-expand it or shrink further because we wonder then why when it comes to something like gender and sexuality and creation care, we have so little to say because we've got a shrunk story that was about saving souls. I'm a Christian, get me out of here. And I'm sitting twiddling my thumbs until I die because at least then I know what's happening. I'm going to heaven. We don't have a great theology as to what's happening in the here and now and about our bodies and about this world and about the creation that we live in. So I think that's why we have a problem. And on that story, we tend to start with, start with, you're really bad, Jeremy. So where's my entry point? Genesis chapter 3. Instead of, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. The bridge building that Genesis 1 and 2 allows us to do, that creation is good. We're made for relationships. Everybody is. Now that might allow me to build some bridges with those who are same-sex attracted and say, I get your wire for relationships. All of us enter all sorts of relationships that are dysfunctional, have problems in our relationships. So we might want to talk about that, but not day one. Not the first thing I go and say is, hey, I've got a problem. Why not build a bridge about we're wired for relationships? When I build a bridge around our identity and who we are, our sense of purpose in this world, and then of course at some point we need to move in the story to the fall, to the brokenness, to the sin, to, to whatever language you might want to put on that. But so often we've said we're going to start with the problem, which is actually not where the biblical text starts. So I'm saying that by way of intro to say I think there's something we need to, to think about in terms of that half story and get in at the right place in the story and see it in the context of that larger story. Now, then what about sex and gender? As I say, I'm not going to say a lot about sexuality, bar that intro at the minute. Happy to do that in questions because 
I think to try and tackle both those is going to be super tricky. The reason I've given out this resource is in, in here, I'm going to say some things that are in this booklet. You don't have to frantically take notes. You can check out. You can just leave now. It's all in here. Um, lots of bits and pieces we put in here just to, to make it a bit more manageable. There's also some videos that are linked at the back of this. Um, a guy called Tim, whose dad transitioned. So I was trying to find a parent, and it was very difficult because of where a child might be in age. And then I met this guy, Tim, who's a pastor actually in Northern Ireland, whose dad transitioned, and he talks about his journey uh, with his dad around that, traveling with him to the operations, sitting as a son and saying, I disagree with you, but I'm also your son, and I want to journey with you as much as I can, stay in relationship with you, and have a space in which we can converse around this. And then a lady, Jeanette, um, who works with an organization living out, who would have described herself really as same-sex attracted, um, came to terms with that uh, as a young lesbian, moved away, you know, lived celibately for 20, 30 years, but now I would say she would be pushed into a trans, saying, you're trans, and would have been pushed towards the operation. So speaks to a lot of younger females around that and what's going on. So some videos, if that's your preferred way, and you hear some stories in that, um, they're linked in this resource on the EA website. Because one of the things we were trying to do was to speak into the space. I met all the trans groups in Northern Ireland, spoke to various people as we were preparing to write this. Then I wanted to interview and dialogue with people. So Jeanette and Tim coming from a faith perspective as Christians. But I also spoke to the groups that just work here to understand a little bit more about it. And the one thing that they said that probably was, uh, oh no, let me just say, the reason we're doing this is because the rate at which this appears in our newspapers. So you might have seen headlines like some of these. Um, this, if you click on, sorry. Uh, okay, so we've got on the left, I identify as a green bin. I'm not trying to make light of the whole subject, but this is where people go in this. On the right is Piers Morgan, who's definitely playing around with this. So some of you may recall Piers identified as a two-spirit penguin. Um, and then people complained, and then other people complained about the complainers, and he kept doing this whole thing about his many identities and how he had to be referred to as an animal. And, um, like... He was exploring, I suppose, the boundaries of this. The next slide is, uh, was outside the Labour Party conference a year ago. Oh, you can't quite see the top. Woman is an adult female human. They put up that definition. People complained. The advertisers took the ad down that's just behind that lady. Simply a dictionary definition that woman is an adult human female was considered controversial. Um, and then the next slide is a gender-bred person. Um, this is version one of many, many, many versions uh, I think they're on version 4, and each one has a number of sub-bits. The reason I show it, although this is very small, is on biological sex, it says it refers to objectively measurable organs and hormones and chromosomes. The, the reason that we've gone on to so many versions since is you can't say that anymore. So five years ago, this was produced by the trans community as, as their, for, on their behalf. Now they would never talk about something that's objectively measurable. They would say it's assigned at birth. You know, and the medics are going, what? And that, this is exactly the space we're living in. So five years ago, everybody agreed that these were objectively measurable things. You know, your chromosomes, um, your organs, and your hormones. Now we're saying, oh, no, that's a sign at birth. So this is the shifting space that we're in. And culture is confused. One of the things I want to say is, on trans, culture's confused. So if you think we're confused, I actually don't think the Christian community is particularly confused. But our culture is definitely at least as confused, and I would argue significantly more confused than we are in this. I mean, parents all the time confused about it. You see it in women's sport. You see it within feminism, within lesbianism, free speech advocates pushing and arguing and debating this and pushing back and forward on this. Um, and so there's a lot of confusion in our culture about this. 
So let me just keep flicking through. So on the next one, this is one of the most helpful things I heard as I was meeting some of the groups. If you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. No two experiences are the same. So some of you in here will know trans people. You'll have seen a program about them. You might be related to somebody who's trans. You might be trans. I mean, you may be at school or a grandparent or an aunt or uncle. You know your kids are in a school where somebody's trans. And that'll be one particular experience. And then there'll be a variety of people having different ones. Some are moving towards an operation. Some aren't. Some are gender queer, pan-gender, all sorts of terminology around that. So one of the issues is it can be quite difficult to put any kind of language on this because so many experiences are different. And that's one of the things we need just to recognize. So, um, trans, kind of what is it? If you're on the, the, I put the chapter number, chapter two, we sort of just unpack definitions a little bit. If you're one of those people who likes to follow along a little bit. There's no one experience. It's an umbrella term. It's the first thing I'd say. This might seem strange, but the first thing I'm going to say is what it's not. It's not intersex. That's a, a separate category. Again, if that's something you have a question about, I'm happy to pick that up at the end. Um, but, uh, intersex people don't describe themselves as trans, and most trans people aren't intersex. That's just the reality. So there's usually three things people describe. One is gender dysphoria, or a rare medical condition. It affects about 15,000 people in the UK are, on the, are, are patients in a gender identity clinic. So that's where your level of discomfort or distress hits a medical level. You say uh, the notion of being born in a wrong body, the disconnect between your biological sex and what you experience as your gender identity causes such discomfort you meet the medical criteria. Gender incongruence to degree could be a phase. It could be something that lasts longer. There's not really agreed language on this, but most people agree there's a, there's a concept. There's something below dysphoria. There's a level of disconnection or something, but it doesn't meet the kind of medical criteria for the level of, of discomfort. Um, and then the third is a much kind of wider ideological movement influenced by queer theory. You could have allies or friends in there. You could say you're gender queer, non-binary. Not that you're saying, I want to change. I'm just saying, I don't, I don't like this category of male and female. I don't want to use that language. So you get a wider kind of mo- movement. Um, and part of the confusion is around language, even inside the community. So the groups I met had different definitions and understandings. They acknowledged that they had different perspectives in each other's groups because they knew who I was meeting. I was saying who I was meeting. Uh, And they acknowledged that therefore it was hard for people to engage because even within the community, there's some different terminology used and understandings. Um, So the ambiguity of language, I would say, is one of the trickiest parts of this. How do we get here? I discussed in chapter 7. I'll not say a lot about this. This is some people's favorite slide, the next one. Um, this is the ism slide. Uh, I'm not suggesting we go through any of these, but some people like to understand that this just happened. It feels like trans just appeared overnight in some ways. A couple of years ago, this wasn't on the radar. Now it's like one of the key issues almost every day in our papers. But actually, ideas like relativism and queer theory I mean it's maybe not that surprising. Relativism says there's no authority. Nobody tells me who I am. There's no binary. Nobody tells me that these are the categories, male and female. And a queer theory is kind of trying to, I suppose, subvert some of the norms. What are the norms in this and deconstruct heteronormativity? The consumerism that commodifies various things. So I think you can trace some of the streams and we say a little bit more about that in the booklet. But I actually don't think this is as surprising. It's like a, a river, a raging kind of river down in a valley 
When you see it down there, it's carving a new pathway. But if you kind of walk back up the hills, you can pick out some of the streams, much smaller streams coming into it. But once they merge together, they can create quite a powerful kind of current down through the valley. And that is what we're seeing at the minute. And for some, understanding the streams will be helpful. So what does the Bible say around this topic? Because in one sense, you could say, well, well, not much. It's very difficult to go to a proof text. There's not a text in here that says something about transgender real explicitly. I can just go, oh, well, if you just look up you know, Leviticus, you'll be fine. It's not as simple as that. There's actually very few kind of key passages. There's something on eunuchs. There's something on cross-dressing. Um, but I would say those aren't probably the most helpful passages on it. I think somebody like Vaughan Roberts... Uh, who've written around that creation, fall, redemption, restoration arc again and talked about how we might understand this. He's writing that as a same-sex attracted uh, man, uh, but he's writing into the trans debate and thinking about some of the analogies that he would see in that space. I think what the Bible does say is the importance of the body. We see that in creation, in the incarnation, that Jesus came and took on flesh in a human body. He was resurrected bodily. He ascended into heaven bodily. Bodies are not just a shell that we inhabit. There's no such thing as Peter Linus separate from this body. You can't take me away and say, well, there's just this shell and you could take an inner me out and then sort of just kind of put me into another body. That, that's, not a, that's not a way we can understand the world. I, this, this body is integral to who I am. Theologically, that's what the Bible tells me. I can only exist bodily. So my body is incredibly important. The Bible saying Jesus came and took on a human body, resurrected in that body. And the Bible talks about sex, as in biological sex, and uh, gender, that humankind are made in the image of God, male and female. And that male and female then are developed in Genesis 1 into Genesis 2 into the Ish and the Isha, the man and the woman. Sex and gender, if you like, though the, the Hebrew language wouldn't really sort of build on that, but it does distinguish between a kind of biological concept into more like what we would understand. So from male and female into man and woman, and that those two are linked together. The Bible also rejects what is called a Gnostic view. Um, and so Gnosticism is kind of interesting idea. There's, there's various aspects to it. But one of them was that this physical world is lesser and not as important. And again, that there's some sort of real inner me that's really important. So Gnosticism playing around, I think, with platonic ideas for those who are interested, saying this physical world isn't, isn't the key, the soul is the key. And Paul says, no. He rejects that really firmly. He said, don't you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Like your, your physical bodies are really important. They're not just something you can do with as you please. You don't get to change them. Your bodies are important. Don't you know your bodies will be resurrected? Honor God with your body, he says. So Corinthians, really important uh, set of passages there about the importance of our bodies. So again, you can't have this separate idea. You'll hear this in the trans community. There's an inner me in the wrong body. Biblical text says, no, I don't, I don't get that. That doesn't, that doesn't work. Though we haven't helped ourselves as Christians when we sometimes talk about the saving of the soul and that this world doesn't really matter. Some of our theology has played into that unhelpfully. So, um, there's lots more we could say, but hopefully that gives you a flavor of what the Bible might say on this.
So how do we respond pastorally like to the reality of this? How do we be biblically rooted but realize we're living in a culture that's struggling with this? People struggle because if you're struggling with your transgender identity, that goes right to the heart of who you are. If you have a sense of being born in the wrong body, and those with gender dysphoria are experiencing that. They're hitting a medical diagnosis. This is somewhat like anorexia or depression. They're not perfect analogies. This is very real to those who experience it. How do we wrestle and engage with them? And it's tough uh, because it goes to their very sense of identity and their very sense of belonging. Uh, one of the things we've said is we're, we're going to be one voice. There are inevitably going to need to be medical voices involved in that. And because of the nature of the kind of dysphoria or discomfort experienced, those within the mental health community, and those within family and friends, and we're going to need to be one of a range of voices responding to the person. But what might that response look like in broad terms? I think Jesus at the well in John chapter 4 gives us a kind of a model for how you engage with somebody who is marginalized in a community. You may remember the story. His disciples have gone off to find some food. Jesus is at this well in Samaria in the middle of the day and this woman comes out. Nobody goes to the well in the middle of the day unless you don't want to be seen. And she comes out and has this encounter with Jesus. And the encounter is compassionate first and foremost. He meets the woman at her point of need um, and, and, and meets her at this well and they have this conversation about what it is to be a Samaritan and what Jesus is doing there. Then there's this really interesting integrity moment where Jesus says to her to go and bring her husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. He said, what you've said is true. You've had five husbands actually, but the man you're with is not your husband. Uh, and it's quite, a, it's quite a stark kind of encounter. It's a, it's, a, it's a harsh engagement. And yet at the same time, she runs off back into the town and says, come and see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. Come and see this guy. And so she brings people from the town with her. And what Jesus does in a matter of an hour or two, I think is something we'll spend probably weeks and months in many places with that first compassionate encounter with people. We'll meet them at their point of need, all sorts of people and friends. And then there are going to be moments where we'll have to have an integrity encounter. We're going to have to say, what's going on here? We're going to have to ask some questions. We're going to have to engage with them and set out something of what we think. But the aim is, always, that's not the end point. Sometimes we sort of got that view, well, Christians, we're just going to tell you where you're wrong. Jesus doesn't do that. He has a truth encounter with it, which is really quite striking. But the outcome is always redemptive. To come into relationship with him, come and bring your friends, and they come and people come and find out more about this Jesus. Um, and I think that's got to be the journey that we look to take people on. Where we lead with compassion. At some point, there's going to be an integrity conversation. No matter, it's not just about trans, I think with anybody that we're engaging with with a view towards redemption. Because the discipleship journey is one of the toughest. This is Al Mohler, leader of the Southern Baptist um, College, or, uh, saying this, the transgender revolution represents one of the most difficult pastoral challenges this generation of Christians will face. And part of the reason for that is just, just the reality of loving somebody who's trans. It is likely to be a lifelong journey for them. There's rarely going to be a quick fix. We've got to love them, if the next slide, I think. We've got to love our trans peoples as our, as our neighbors and promote their dignity. Empathy, trying to listen and understand some of the challenges. When I met Jeanette, I already knew Jeanette, but when she told me about her experience growing up and how now, so this is one of the ladies on the video, 
And now, in her probably late 50s, as she reflects back, she would have realized that she would probably be diagnosed as trans. As she shared what it was to go for an operation where she was told by the surgeon she would need a mastectomy, and he waited for her to have what he considered to be the normal reaction, she said, I didn't have it. I'd never been comfortable with my body. I've been a disciple of Jesus at this stage for 20 or 30 years. She said, I had to wrestle with what it is to be fearfully and wonderfully made and keep having that declared over me. See, I couldn't empathize with all that she was doing. I couldn't fully understand it. But to hear her story, the level of disconnect she had with her body, somebody who had um, put aside, if you like, stepped away from her sexuality and laid that down. Uh, so she'd grown up as a lesbian in her 20s and set that all down and followed Jesus now for the last 20 or 30 years, but still had some senses of disconnect with her body. And so to hear her story, it really helped me to maybe have more empathy with those who are struggling with it. And that's what enables her to minister and pastor to those in this space. To have the compassion, to be able to move to a truthful conversation, but to be patient, because this is a long journey for most people who are going to find themselves in this trans community. I'm going to skip through that. I'll say one thing about naming. When I've met those from the trans community, I tend to use their name. I get that people have different perspectives. If I don't use their name, there's no conversation. And so for me in that moment, missionally, I'm, just, I'm comfortable using their name. It's not a deal breaker. I realize that for others that's going to be difficult. And, and I know the challenge. I don't think there's a right and wrong there. I think Daniel took on the name Belteshazzar, a name to a foreign god, but he was content. He may not have been happy to do that. He drew a line at a different point. I think names and pronouns are going to be a challenge for some of us going forward. But I want to finish up in the next, just click forward, click on that. It's more of these, um, this is the outcome bit and just on it, particularly around children. So there's no currently agreed, if you, sorry, click back, the no currently agreed outcomes or measures under the NHS. So that's one of the things that makes engagement with trans very difficult. The NHS hasn't agreed what, what's a good outcome. In fact, the trans community doesn't because some want to move through to an operation and transition some don't. And there's lots of stages in between that and variations in that. Some are on drugs and blockers. Some are on kind of binders and physical changes. Some want to go through all the operations. Um, and so there's no agreed good outcome measure. But where it gets very challenging is around children and young people. Because of these four key, tra- well, three below, but four key trends, let's say. So the rate of referral has gone up 1,000% in six years. Big change. Now, it was 150 six years ago. It's gone to 1,200. So the numbers are relatively small, but it's a big shift. But these three are key. The age of referral has gone up. The shift has gone from those who are born male to those who are born female. And the final thing is that 80% of those who go to a clinic um, when they're children will stay, I've said reverts, probably say in their birth sex. And now if you go in adolescence, 80% will transition. So let me put those three things together and say, so statistically, five years ago, somebody went to the clinic. They were likely to be five or six, boy, born boy, and they would not transition. Statistically, if somebody went to the clinic yesterday, they were more likely to be sort of 14, 15, female, and would transition. That's kind of the big shift in the last five years. So it used to be a much smaller number of younger, generally born boys who would not go transition, in part because of the time lag. There's nothing you can do at five or six. Very earliest interventions are at 12. And so that's the the graph kind of showing that spike in the number of girls. And the next graph shows this kind of spike in the age of referrals now pushing up to a bit later. And those largely girls coming later talk to each other online. 
know what to do and ask for, can immediately get on to drugs at 12 and are more likely to push towards transition because they can exclude their parents as well. Now we're beginning to get the start of the pushback on that because that's problematic. There's a case lodged at the minute in the UK trying to challenge that. Can a child of 12 give informed consent to the kind of treatment they're getting? Which is infertility it'll lead to, which is to move towards an operation. Now you can't get that in the UK until you're 18, um, but the consequences are massive. So we're seeing increased rates of detransitioning further down the line, and we're seeing a lot more challenge around the Tavistock Clinic in London. People resigning from it, people asking questions, and so on. So I think the biggest issue is around kids. That's the big question mark that we're getting online. And the three, three areas of pushback culturally are women's sports. So Sharon Davis and Martina Nebradalova are out the front sort of saying, if you go ahead and allow trans people to compete, so people who are born male to compete in female sport, female sport is over as we know it. So that's the first kind of big um, pushback. One of them's now slipped my mind. I'm, gonna, I'm trying to remember it in a minute. Um, well, the second biggest area of pushback is feminists who are saying basically this, that this is undermining what it is to be a woman. Big fights in Scotland around this, particularly in the SNP world. But just in general, they're saying there's no such thing then as a woman's space. If people can just self-identify and turn up in whatever space they want, if I can self-identify and say I'm a woman, I get sent to a woman's prison, I can go into a woman's changing area, I can go into a woman's hostage or refuge, particularly for domestic violence, then you can see how that just undermines every framework we have in play, a woman's changing area in Topshop, and some of the key shops are putting this in. They're saying this is ridiculous. People just put in cameras. They do what they like. You know, this is men who just self-identify and go in. So the feminists are pushing back. And finally, the lesbians, strangely, are are the other people we work with. Because they're saying, young girls are being told, you're not lesbian, you're trans. Lesbians are being eradicated in the conversation. So this big LGB alliance has formed. Not a T, you see there. It's growing. And some of the key founders of Stonewall and others are saying, we've lost the plot here, guys. We're missing out in our over sort of championing of trans, we've missed the fact that young girls are not being uh, properly represented who, who are probably more likely to be lesbian and they're being directed down the trans path. And the danger of that is they go through a whole series of operations. And that's much harder to reverse and unpack. Now, I'm not saying that I'm excited about the people that I am collaborating with in some, some of these spaces, free speech, feminists, lesbians, uh, and others. But there are moments when actually we do say, well, actually, a lot of what we're saying is aligned in this moment. Some of the concerns that we have are actually shared in this moment. But our framework, our theological framework, is different than theirs. So three things I would just say from the church's perspective in response, and then I'm open to uh, questions, is just I do think our first response must be a compassionate one. This is a very difficult area. Um, it's going to keep growing. I do think in one sense we may have peaked out at the top end around women's sport and some of these things. We're going to start to see more shifts. If you get the Sunday Times at all, it had a whole series for weeks on end just pushing back on this. One of the first papers to start really questioning the narrative. So, but we need to be a compassionate voice in the space because many of the others are very combative. And then secondly, I do think we should ask for clarity and push for that. We should articulate our position, but we should say it's very unclear what are good outcomes, what are the ideologies behind this, how much of this is medical, gender dysphoria is a medical condition, but there's a big ideology pushing people around who do not meet a lot of the medical criteria. And the medics will tell you that they're not allowed to ask any questions. Basically. As soon as somebody comes in and says, I'm trans, they get sent to the clinic. No questions asked. 
And finally, we do need to raise some of the concerns. Safe spaces for women in this moment, in particular the rust kind of invasive, invasive procedures for children. And I suspect in years to come, we'll see a big pushback saying, what were we doing? Like, thank you for not smoking. We knew the risks. It was clear. Drugs being used are off-label uh, prostate cancer drugs being used on kids. Sample sizes that Tavistock are using are 30 or 40 people in a sample that they've run the tests on. This is nowhere near enough science backing this. And then the trends that I told you about, the big shift, what's the one thing you're not allowed to research? That shift, because you can't question the current narrative. Nobody will allow the questions to be asked in the funding. And I say all that to say we're not the people with confusion in this moment. I find trans one of the most interesting spaces that I get to engage, not just with Christians, but with non-Christians. Because many of my non-Christian friends have at least as many questions as we have, at least as many concerns. But they don't have any framework or, or way they think of articulating it. Just something in them is like, this doesn't feel quite right. So we're saying actually we have some theological, biblical understanding of why we think this is problematic. We want to pastorally care for people, but we also want to challenge an ideology that says, you can just pick and choose, you can change your body. And the reality, the sad reality, is that self-harm rates remain equally high before and after operations. Because I've done debates with people who've had them, and they're saying, I can't change my sex. You fundamentally can't do that. Many of them will acknowledge that. And they're not necessarily any more satisfied post the procedures. There may be a period, and that's one of the challenges. And so rates of self-harm will remain high often after operations and rates of detransition are on the rise. So that's people who've gone through everything and are now going back again because they said, I wasn't advised. Nobody told me what was going on here. So it's a very contested, fast-moving space. Hopefully this and the videos will be of use. I realize we've covered a lot of ground. Um, so I think Michael's going to come and we'll take a... I'm, I'm happy to take any questions after again, but we'll do a few now publicly if you like. Uh, and I'll try my best to engage with them. Thanks. Thank you very much, uh, Peter, for sharing that uh, with us. So we're now just going to open it up to, to the floor for, uh, for questions. I just have one question for you, Peter, uh, to, to kick us off. So you mentioned there the, the free speech movement in response to, uh, to the trans issue. Um, in terms of freedom of religious expression, there, there are people who've, who are Christians who've lost their, their jobs, uh, especially in over in England in the last number of years, uh, because of this particular issue, teachers and so on. Um, do you think that that's, there is a level of uh, freedom of religious expression? Do you see that changing? Uh, and what practically then can we as Christians, how can we prepare ourselves to speak the truth in love in our workplaces? So I think workplaces are going to become very interesting and challenging around this um, so it partly depends on where people want to draw battle lines to some extent so uh, there's been one medic uh, who was doing assessments and wouldn't use the pronoun or the name in fact this was cited in the case this resource um, saying that Christians are not of one mind on this which was partially true but that was, I would say misused in its, in its citation in the employment tribunal I guess my, my first question is, what's your, what, what do you see as a hill to die on? So naming for me is not a hill to die on, but I wouldn't like to be compelled. And that's where teachers, I mean, I, I would really struggle with the teaching if you're compelled, especially somebody who would describe themselves as non, or gender fluid, sorry. So they would be changing their name. They would have a one, well, two names, sorry. But they would change that potentially daily. Now that, the medical backing for that is exceedingly thin if I want to I would say so to be sort of compelled to 
get into that, I would find extremely difficult versus somebody who's got a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, which is, as far as I can ascertain, is absolutely a legitimate condition, something like anorexia. So you've got that tension going on. I mean, Jordan Peterson really came to fame about his refusal to be compelled to use a pronoun or name. How many have heard of Jordan Peterson? Oh, this is a high proportion. Some, some places I go, nobody has, and I just drop that analogy. But Peterson, that was what made him famous, really, and he's built off that. Um, so I think Daniel is an interesting moment. Daniel is a challenging text. I probably love him more than anybody else for public square engagement. And I wrestle with, he, he learned Babylonian language and culture. He then had the name Belteshazzar put on him. It's a clear reference to a foreign god, but that was okay. But then he drew the line at the food. So we do have to draw lines. We have to resolve at some point this far and no further. Where we draw those lines is an interesting question. How then, and for some we're going to have to say, I'm going to have to come out of that space. I can't do it. Um, and we've seen one or two cases about that. Now the teacher, I think, has made a settlement in the, in the one case that I'm aware of, of a teacher, and the doctor, I don't think, played his hand as well as he could have. So we need to be careful we don't get a bit, some of these cases get exaggerated or not reported brilliantly. But yes, it's a challenging environment. I think we've got to think in advance, how am I going to process that? How much relationship do I have and how far am I prepared to push this? But some people may have to step back from roles they're in, and that is undoubtedly difficult. Okay, thank you. Uh, any, any questions? Just raise your hand. It's a big be brave moment like the yeah. <laughs> question around transgender. Yeah, go for it. We don't just want it to be a show thing, but here. <laughs> I'm just genuinely interested, Peter, um, how much engagement you've had with schools and um, how concerned we should be about the education of children on this issue, particularly in Northern Ireland. Um, Yes, we have, um, and yes, there's definitely a point of concern. So we worked, well, we engaged with the Education Authority on their most recent resource. Uh, we've done an analysis on it that's available on our website, uh, reimaginingfaith.com is what we call the local site. So the Education Authority produced a guideline. Um, so in the scheme of global guidelines, it's not too bad, in truth, but it's still problematic at a number of points. And classically, the education authorities say, you teachers and everybody else should use people's preferred names and pronouns, but we, by the way, in our back-end systems won't. We'll not change any of their exam stuff until they leave school and get their name changed officially, and then they can come back and actually rewrite their exam history, as in they can get it in their new name and go back. So we pointed out that this seems somewhat unfair. They're saying, do this, do this. Now, my response to that is a couple of things. One is, get on the board of governors. That's my response to anybody ever. My wife is the governor in our household. Is that those are places that do have influence, but the schools are absolutely feeling the pressure to go a particular way. And in one sense, arguably, we are at the end of the curve. I think there's beginning to be a shift. So the guidelines in Oxford are some of the most kind of pushed one way, and they are being legally challenged. There was somebody looking at doing it here because you think you'd have a more receptive court here, but actually our guidelines are probably some of the slightly more conservative smalls. They're not great. But, so there's always that challenge but then there's still guidelines They're, at every point they say it's basically up to the school but they, and then they fudge for example the, no, the gender queer people who are changing their name day by day and just do an illustration on that and then say what you should do basically through the illustration but they won't write it as a policy piece so there's a lot of you know, but we've got to be on the front foot engaging so schools are definitely a contested space 
Like, I've got kids who are 10 and 6, and we have it even within our own, in a primary school in Port Stewart, which is like, you know, the back end of nowhere, and where I live. You know, that's just the reality. It's on the move, it's, and, it will, and we'll get caught. So it's almost like we're coming to it a bit late than the English schools, and then I think we'll get a bit of a wave of it, and then there'll be an adjustment period, and they're ready, you know, so sports day is where it gets really interesting, changing facilities, you know, uniform policies. Um, so there's, a, there's an agreement around, you know, there's a tending to go with it, but then some of the response is to go essentially to a non-binary uniform, and ironically for some of the trans, they don't, people who, are, they don't want that. The whole thing is they want to dress as a girl, not in the neutral uniform doesn't get the point. They're not for all again, so there's again some different trends going on within the trans community. It's a big exploration because there's a whole load who say, I'm non-binary. There aren't two sexes. There's no sexes or all sexes. And then there's a group that say, no, I'm born the wrong body and I want to transition very definitely to the other. There are two. And this is the internal conflict. So part of the reason we produce this is so people don't get overwhelmed, that parents can go in and maybe talk to a teacher and have a little bit more thinking around it. And we responded to the education authorities' guidelines to say, you could have done better, guys, and there's a number of places where I think these are problematic, and you probably will get challenged, actually. What do you do in an all-girls school that allows a pupil to transition to a boy, but then says we're not allowing any other boys to come in? So either that person who's transitioned you are treating as a boy and therefore you're now admitting boys. That is your policy change. You can't say it was a special case. That just doesn't legally stand up. I just think they're all over the shot and they're going to get into serious trouble on that. So, or you're not treating them as a boy. You're treating them as a boy, inverted commas, in which case they'll challenge you back. So real issues. And then it works to changing facilities into sport. But kids' sport is going to be big. You cannot have somebody who's born male competing against a female in running or tennis, but you definitely can in rugby. And it's happening in Wales. Big conversation now, not at schools level, it's at adult level. Uh, males, born males playing women's rugby is a recipe. Because rugby are saying it's up to the referee and there's going to be a big case any day now. And that'll end it. Somebody's going to get sued. And sadly, it'll take that. Anyway, sorry, that's a wee tangent of mine. I think sport will be the push. Sport is really interesting because our culture doesn't know what to do with it. They get it. They go, that's not fair. There's something not right about that. Hold on. I mean, I've got parents who've, in Scotland, same thing. Their kid is competing against somebody born male who's winning everything. Just not fair. So interesting conversation. Where does your idea of fairness come from? Justice, what's going on here? Why that? And suddenly we've got an interesting conversation happening now. The pushback begins. Sorry. Hi. Hello. Thank you, Hello. Peter. Hello. Um, you might remember me from university. Uh, so my question's along the same lines. Um, what age, or I, mean, I know you can't give us a definite thing, but how do we tell our children? How do we, how do we begin conversations with our children? Our boys are uh, eight and nearly 12, and I suppose I'm thinking of the, the nearly 12-year-old. Could you give some advice about how to approach these issues? Um, because I think he's gonna, it's going to affect him a lot more than it did for us going through school. Yeah, so the speed of change is huge. Um, I should bring my 10-year-old, who is probably the trans expert of 10-year-olds, um, so she wonders why I've got unicorns in the books that I'm reading because the gender-bred person has become a gender-bred, a gender unicorn now. Um, so she's pretty savvy on all things trans. Now that's an unusual ten-year-old that has to be admitted. Um, so a couple of things. I mean, it's really hard. So what we're doing is to take the two scenarios. There's a kid who's uh, presenting uh, born male, but presents as female whenever 
they can at school. I don't actually think they're saying they're female, they prefer to dress. But we're having that conversation with our kids about what's going on there and, and talking about that. And then there's um, a lesbian parents in the school. So again, Rose and I are saying, okay, so here's our relationship as a couple. Uh, wrong is an interesting word to use with a six-year-old. It's not that I... So I want to... I know if I say wrong to my six and ten, in fact, they'll repeat that verbatim. So I'm trying to avoid wrong. I'm just saying, that's not good. That's not healthy. That's not ideal. Don't hear me say that I don't think it's wrong, but I've got to, you've got to articulate to a kid's age and style. So my ten-year-old is very black and white. If I say it's wrong, that's it. Everybody will know it's wrong. Boom. So there's a caution just to how I'm going to get her to frame it. But we're definitely... And then the stereotyping. So we have one dresses in sports gear all the time and one is a complete princess which is hilarious because my wife is complete, like, is often dressed in black and wouldn't be particularly effeminate in her presentation. So we're like, where does this pink princess come from? Um, so we're also trying to work out, well, what do we talk about? But was it, So lots of friends say, oh, it's a girl's film. Who was saying this? Oh, Frozen 2, that's a girl film or something. So we're trying to, how do we slightly push back on that? How do we say rugby is not just a boy's sport? We can watch that. How do we put some language around that that affirms them as females, which in the case of my two girls but not that they have to follow particularly traditional roles. And that is a challenge. So we're trying to get away from some language, this is girly, this is boy, this is, you know, and yet say, this is what we do see in you, which is more like justice orientation in one of them in a hospitality. So calling out their gifts and then affirming positive male-female relationships a lot. So that's one of the things we're doing, as opposed to saying this lesbian couple are bad or wrong at this stage. We're saying that's not the relationship we want for you. That's, these are the relationships we're looking towards. We're kind of affirming a lot in that and pointing that out. And then uh, the other big thing we do is authority figures. So we say, if you, don't, if you don't want to come to us for an issue, what we're already beginning to establish is the four or five other people we're heavily signposting, this is who you go to. And we're saying, your teachers you have to respect, but you don't have to either agree with them or fully trust them. Sorry, all teachers. But that moves each year for them, so we have to be really careful with the 10-year-old again. Respect. You must Respect but they're not always right in our view and you must come to us and then these two or three other people are the dedicated kind of anti-uncles, whatever you want to call them, that we're saying go to. And we're quite clear with a couple of other people that we journey with who we love dearly, but we're like, they're not it, (laughs) especially with a 10-year-old. These are people we're also working with and that's not where you go for advice at the key moment, guys. Whatever the issue is, you go to these people. Um, So it's tough. We're trying to break down some stereotypes, affirm the best positives we can, and then say these are the other people you can go and talk to. Um, but we're a slightly weird house where trans is an almost daily topic of conversation as well. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Uh, just in the, in the booklet, you talk about under the baptism section, uh, while many churches will want to offer a place of welcome, baptizing, baptizing a person into their trans trans identity will be seen as an act of affirmation and or confirmation. Uh, And then you just go on to say it's wise to have an agreed policy in advance rather than beginning to draft one in response to an individual request. I just wonder, are there any, from your EA and dealing with a range of churches, lessons to look out for for churches who have been through that issue? Yeah, I mean, the policy is part of it in that churches do baptism differently. So I've spoken to some where they have a baptism service and in the end they're almost like, if anybody else wants to get baptized, come on down. So in that moment, they realize, and they'll take people who are maybe recovering alcohol, alcoholics on day like one or two kind of thing. And that's their theology and practice. So I'm saying to them, think consistently around that. But for others where you're, 
you know, probably ones I've been more raised in where you're saying you need to be on a journey a year to at least, and we want to see you much more on the road to recovery. Then likewise in trans, if you're still on drugs or drinking, but you've had that maybe a bit of an encounter, but you're way early in the discipleship journey, we were saying, no, you're not ready to be baptized. And likewise, you maybe had a moment of encounter, but you're still not sure pursuing the identity question. So for a number of youth ones, they've been saying, pause. They were really reluctant, what I'm thinking of, just saying, we really don't want to bless you into this identity at this moment because it seems you have met Jesus, but this is all very new to you and you're asking a lot of questions around your identity. So they, were, they did just say, look, we want you to hold off. We want you to journey all of this for much longer because to us, baptism is a very big moment. And if we do that, we would feel like we're absolutely confirming an identity we're, we're not prepared to endorse. That's not where we are. And... and they were relatively young persons who hadn't made full transition or any of that. I mean, it gets much more complicated with somebody who's maybe been on that as transition 15 years ago. I personally would be saying, I, don't, I, can't, I, would be, I can't imagine saying you need to fully detransition. You know, it's just such a lot of operations involved. You're ready. So we, but we need to work out very practically what stages are at and could they move to a much more neutral presentation than... I'm all, I can't see how I'd be going to recommend another set of operations back. So those kind of questions, I want the consistency of saying, well, what are we doing with other people? So do we let people serve coffee and do these, but not come into baptism or membership until they're further on the journey? And then the last thing you want to do is have the person right there in front of you, and you're like, I, I really want to baptize you, but uh, I don't have something. So maybe I've thought about it, and we've done some work and said, we always want to see people further on the journey, and we're not going to baptize them into their new identity. Anglicans were in the back of my mind here. They were doing some liturgy stuff. This is obviously a UK-wide resource. And I just think it's deep. There's a kind of renaming. They were going, there's a whole rebaptism, a whole new identity they wanted to bless people into. And I just, I, I, there is that, but it's not that. It's not around your gender and sex. That's exactly the wrong thing. I think it's counter everything that Paul's saying in Galatians and what being set free to and then what you're blessing somebody into in the moment of baptism. So I have a very high view of baptism would be saying, no, like scale this all back. Um, but there are definitely those complications of somebody who's way further down the line. But barring that, be saying, please, you know, really slow that down and saying, we just don't feel comfortable baptizing you into that. And you're both legally and theologically, I think, entitled to do that. But you're much safer if you've thought about it and done some articulation as to why that is. Um, I think we get ourselves into trouble when we go ad hoc. But I am a lawyer by my own confession. I like policies. Uh, I find defensiveness, something I find helpfulness in them. Not everybody does. Um, so consistency was the other piece that this doesn't become. So, we, oh, the guy's coming off drugs. Great, you can get baptized now, but you try not know. Like, we've got to be consistent, I think, as well. This is not a different issue. And theologically, this is a little bit more uh, difficult. It's not as simple and clear cut. I do think it's there. Once we pull it all back and we begin to understand the, the holistic nature of what the gospel is saying, um, but even recently, I was speaking last week, in fact, and somebody at a youth conference, it turns out somebody said they were trans afterwards, who was on a year out with them, and we're having to work that through. And I was like, what do they mean they're trans? I don't know, they just said they were trans. I said, okay, you've got a lot of questions to go now. That's a huge issue, probably in their early 20s. So I was like, they clearly hadn't presented yet. They clearly weren't having an op. So loads of questions I'd have, and then the discipleship journey begins, as it does with nearly all of us. That's the key. You know, again, this is not a separate issue from any other discipleship issue. Um, but we tend not to do any of them that well, I would say. Or we could do better, put it that way. 
Peter, thank you so much for uh, all that you've shared with us tonight. I think you're sticking around for any more questions after, but we're just going to have some uh, tea and coffee at the end, and we'll, we'll close our, our formal time Yes, I'll here, talk so. trans all night long, as my kids know, so I'm happy to try and engage on any other questions. Great, here. thank you. Let's, uh, I'll just pray for us as we finish.